Thanks for joining us today for the Post-Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. Season 3 has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley. And today I have Corey Nathan with me from the land of Southern California. How are you, Corey? I'm doing great. It's so good to be with you. Well, it's kind of weird. We're recording for the spring right now, but it's Christmas time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's always a a fun time of year. Could be a stressful time of year for a lot of us. And I'm doing my best to wind down work so that uh, we can enjoy, enjoy some time off and, and being, being among each other. So. Sure. So Corey, you have Savannah who is age 20, Jackie boy, 18 and Emerson 16, along with family dogs. What does everybody <laughs> want for Christmas? Oh man. So let's see. Savannah is, she's into yoga and she just got her massage therapy certificate and she's into like homeopathic healing. So, and she's also a very precocious young lady. So maybe something on uh, philosophy or healing or something. Uh, Jackie boy, uh, he, he, he wants to get his car issues solved. So um, yeah, he's, he's really into cars. Uh, He's actually working at an auto sound place. So something having to do with cars and Emerson is uh, he's been getting better and better at guitar. So he wants a, a better guitar. And an amplifier, Uh, we might have to wait on the amp because he already has one. But uh, yeah, so that's where they're all at. That's a great question. (laughs) Emerson sounds like a musician's name. Yeah, there was Emerson Lake and Palmer, that that guy. Uh, Or we actually named him after Ralph Waldo Emerson. Ah. Uh, And he's emerging as sort of that kind of thinker. He's in a nihil. He's in like a nihilism isn't dark enough for me phase. (laughs) 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 You know, the the 16 year old who's like, you know, everything, nothing means anything. And I don't know, just hopefully it's just a phase. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they go through so many phases. It's so interesting. It's so interesting to watch kids grow. And, you know, from, from where I'm at right now, I have a grandchild now and my my kids are all grown and it's interesting to watch them develop their own adult philosophies and their own patterns of thinking as, and you just see elements of who they were younger, but, but it's just all different. Yeah. Yeah. They're all so different from each other. I mean, the challenges of each child and, and knowing how best to be, to, to help them go through life and equip them for life. You know, it's, uh, I've made a ton of mistakes and, but I think the one thing that I I am grateful that I had as a compass is I always try to keep in mind what this little human needs, Mm -hmm. not necessarily what I want or what they want, but what, what, what the person needs, you know, what my daughter or son uh, 
either of the sons, you know, and, and in any given moment, any given day or any season that they might be going through, that answer might be changing. So, yep. Yeah, it's so true. So true. Well, let me share a little bit about your, about you with our guests. Um, vocationally, Corey started out as a stockbroker during the day, going to a theater conservatory at night. And since then, he's been an entrepreneur with one foot in business and one foot in creative pursuits, having built and managed such endeavors as a specialty headhunting firm, a theater and film in- ministry a 501c3 to help folks during the pandemic, a residential and commercial service company, and most recently, a new media content company. Avocationally, Corey continues to be a student of theology, politics, and culture, and enjoys sharing invigorating conversations with world-renowned experts of these subjects on the podcast he produces and hosts, talking politics and religion without killing each other. He can also be caught having these same discussions with friends over a good whiskey or glass of wine with the music monk uh, with the music of monk coltrane or louis armstrong setting the mood so which is the preference whiskey or a glass of wine actually rye is my my first go-to a really good rye in uh my last trip to new orleans i discovered there there's a rye called sazerac that i really enjoy but they've also made it a drink a manhattan uh, style drink. And I think that's my, my first go-to, but if you get me a bullet rye or something like that, or on the bourbon side of, you know, Buffalo trace, uh, those are, those are trustworthy go-tos. So then you're, then you're a happy man, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me, I'm curious, um, talk to me a little bit about working in the in, in entertainment industry and with this specialty headhunting firm, how does that process all go down? So that my my life in entertainment industry really started as my heart and my soul in the arts. You know, I started out as a, a New York theater rat, um, and uh, I became a stockbroker as sort of my version of waiting on tables. <laughs> you know, um, it was actually a great education because I got to learn finance, the economy, uh, sort of the caveman version of that. If you're if you're a in a, in a boiler room, <laughs> which I was. Um, but I, I did get to learn a lot about business that way. But in the meantime, like I said, my, my soul and my thoughts, my heart was all in the theater, all about bringing stories to life and participating mm-hmm. in that process and sharing those stories with the community of people around us, whether that was a little 30 seat theater or a Broadway theater or on film for you know, many thousands of people. Mm-hmm. So that's where my heart has always been. And uh, what I became particularly good at, in addition to uh, cleaning the toilets and the stage, <laughs> um, I, I actually, I, I had a talent. My, my greatest talent was in producing, putting things together. Uh, I wanted to be a brilliant actor, writer, director. And, and I, I, was, I was serviceable. I was like a, a good blue collar actor. I did my job, right? But uh, I was really good at producing. And that that evolved when I came out to LA. That evolved into a headhunting, uh, a specialty headhunting and mergers and acquisitions company. And it might not seem congruent, but the one of the jobs of a producer is finding the people for any given task. On a in a theater, it's everybody from the director, writer, actor to you know the people who are lighting and the backstage people and you know on a film set it, there's even more people to put together and i just 
even if I didn't know, I didn't go to film school. So when I came out here, you know, one of the first producing uh, teams that I was on, I was told, go out, we, we need a gaffer. We need a gaffer. I'm like, okay, I'll go find a gaffer. And my first thought was, what the hell is a gaffer? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I, I, I figured it out and I, I found, I found people and long story short, that evolved into a head hunting company within the industry. Now, when so, you say specialty head hunting, what was the specialty? Yeah. So for one reason or another, I ended up uh, becoming a specialist in the entertainment advertising industry which means the people who make the movie posters, uh, the, the, there's a whole industry within the industry of people who just make the coming attractions that you see before movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, it's like a, it's about as big as a major league sport, that little sub industry of entertainment advertising. And I just got to know all the editors who make the trailers and the producers and the creative executives at the studios. And I became the guy that companies came to, whether it was Universal or Disney or Fox and Sony who said, we need a head of marketing. And they came to me or a lot of my work was on the agency side. So a lot of the actual posters and trailers, and now like the six second bumpers that you see on Instagram, they're made at these little creative boutiques, uh, you know, anywhere from a, you know, one man show in his garage to 150 person company, all creative people making these wonderful things that we see on, on YouTube or, or Facebook Mm -hmm. or in the movies. So that's what I became known for. I don't know exactly, I couldn't point to exactly how I zeroed in on that, but really the the best way I can describe it is that opportunities, when I, I recognized opportunities when they came my way and I found a way to say yes, if for no other reason than to, uh, I, I thought downside would be, the, the worst downside would be I make a new friend in the right. larger entertainment right. industry. And I learned something new about something I didn't know before. And well, I just it just became a- like, it sounds like you have the soul of an entrepreneur. That's, uh, that's kind of, uh, what, well, let me back up. That is how I got into consulting business was I somehow ended up in a conversation with somebody wanting a, uh, a business consultant, a strategic planner. And I said, I can do that. I do strategy. I can, <laughs> you know, and I signed this multi-thousand dollar contract and then went straight to the bookstore and bought strategic planning for dummies. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's, that's how I got my first client in, in, um, as a headhunter. A fellow had a great idea. It sounded like a great idea. 90% of how he described it, I had no idea what he was talking about. He said, uh, and I remember almost word for word what he said. He said, I want to start a boutique competitor to imaginary forces, but I want to do it as a trailer company. I want to do it as an editorial company. And you're probably thinking what I was thinking at that time, like, what the hell are you talking about? I have no idea what any of these words mean, (laughs) but it sounded really cool. I also didn't know exactly how I would help him, but he had some sort of faith in me that I could somehow. And I got about, I, I started researching the industry. I found out Imaginary Forces was this company that had a great creative director named Kyle Cooper. And if you've ever seen the movie Seven, uh, this is going back 20 something years ago, but Seven had this great, the beginning of the movie is called an opening title sequence. Mm-hmm. And up to that point, most 99.9% of movies just had like the title of the movie and directed by and the stars and stuff, just kind of title cards, right? Kyle treated it at completely differently, like with this whole graphically designed treatment as sort of an experiential thing to enter you into the larger experience of the movie. And um, so 
my friend Michael, who started this company as my it was my first project in the industry. Um, he had an idea to do that, but for the trailers to take that level of design and thinking, even even from a music and sound side, um, to to the trailers to the coming attractions. So interesting. Yeah. You know what that makes me think of the most um, is the Bond movies. Yeah, um, how they kind of just immerse you in the story, sort of with this whatever the the recording artist of the of the day is. It's yeah, really really immersed in that right yeah with the music and the graphics and the the visuals that they're showing you can feel like you're sort of caught up in that story you're getting yeah. in the mood of it almost as if you're a character or at least a bystander that that of this story that's unfolding around you right right yeah well before we stop talking about the entertainment industry i have a really important question for you which will have been solved um, by the end of next week, but I have an important question for you. Okay. Do you go to the theater and go in the seats that you can afford, or do you wait until you go to the theater with really good seats that, um, that are within, um, a good eyesight of the stage? I always, there's a few reasons for this, but I always, if I have the option of choosing my seats, I do so, <laughs> you know, so here we have these theaters where uh, you can pay a little bit extra and you get to choose your seats or some theaters even where it's only literally like 20 seats in the entire theater right. and you get those big seats and then you get the food served and the thing and the, you know, and it, it's expensive, but I, I don't go, I don't actually go to the movies that often. Um, right. No, I'm talking about I'm talking about live theater. Oh, oh, live theater. Yeah, live yeah. theater. You know, do you um do you wait and wait and save up and go for the expensive seats or do you go for the go for the cheap cheap seats that may be a distance from the stage? Okay, so that's different. Uh when I saw Hamilton for example, I had really crappy seats, but the crappiest seat seeing a good production of Hamilton is better than just about any experience that you could have really wow. good theater, man. It's, it's a, it's a shared human experience. Uh, Duke Glenn Close described it as disturbing the molecules. Mm. We're, we're there with each other, having an experience among each other. And, and if it's done well, you're really disturbing the molecules. <laughs> Well, I'm headed down to Southern California and I'm having this debate with myself over Hamilton. So, oh, yeah, no. If so, the key is just to get get there, you know, and, and all of my peculiarities, you know, I, I, um, I get really claustrophobic. I, I found even this has been exacerbated over the last year and a half, not being I forgot how to people. Um, and, and I literally uh, just uh, about a week ago, I literally had the first panic attack of my life. Mm. I was around, it was the awards at one of the entertainment industries awards ceremonies. And we hadn't had one in about two years. Right. And I never, I always had sort of like this low grade allergy to being around that many people, but it, it wasn't anything. It was always something I could kind of deal with by like waiting through the end credits, you know, before I got up and left the movie theater, as opposed to leaving with a big herd, <laughs> you right. know? Right. Uh, but it was never something that came upon me like a like a mental emotional heart attack. Uh, so, um, but but 
I would take the risk, <laughs> you know, for certain productions, I would take that risk of, of that happening because being a part of and experiencing something like Hamilton, as important of a story as that is and how that story has been told and how we are able because of that creativity and inspiration and, and the expertise, the virtuosity of those performances, mm-hmm. we're able to reimagine those that story, that that uh, origin story of our country, um, I, it's so it's so important and so impactful for us as a culture uh, yeah. to to experience that. That I would risk having another panic attack. Yes. To, uh, you know. <laughs> so that's my answer, my long winded answer. Sorry. Okay. Well, thank you. Hey, tell me where you grew up at. So all my family's from Brooklyn. Uh, I was born on the New York side. And but when I was uh, just uh, just past my sixth birthday, we moved out to Jersey. Uh, and if anybody is a Bruce Springsteen fan, uh, Bruce's song "My Hometown" is about Freehold, New Jersey, and the surrounding area. That's my hometown. So I grew okay. up, yeah, uh, almost setting you know terrible fires to the cornfields behind us, and you know causing all kinds of trouble. And then when I, when we were teenagers, going down to the shore and and all those roots that. Bruce Spring, uh, Springsteen sing, sings about uh, Route 88 and Route 9 and Route 18. Those are all the routes that we uh, got speeding tickets on. And, you know, uh, and then the shore, you know, from Asbury to Point Pleasant to Seaside Heights. That's where I chased girls and, <laughs> you know, and got that's into all great. that kind of trouble. That's yeah. great. What uh, what has changed the most about Jersey over the years? You know, I haven't been there since 1995. I, okay. I mean, I go back to visit. Um, but, uh, oh man, there's some things that we can't change about that place. There's something that's deeply rooted about that place that just can't change. So there's a bigger mall. Uh, there's a lot more housing developments in those cornfields. Um, but there's something I can't put my finger on it, but when you go to the inlet in Point Pleasant, it's still has the echoes of that mythology that Bruce mm-hmm. sang about, or that, you know, uh, a generation after Bruce was like spin doctor and blues traveler and mm-hmm. Bon Jovi. And they had each of them, all their own voices. Um, and, and, but they're, I don't want to get too mystical about it, but it's almost like they're tapping into something that is true and doesn't change about that place. They're tapping into that song. They're tapping into that poetry. They're t- tapping into that ethos of, of that place. Mm-hmm. It might be the winds coming off of the Atlantic. It might be still the, the lingering smell of those cornfields, you know, or, or even the echoes of the, the Battle of Monmouth. I, I don't know. Um, but there's some things that just don't change about that place. Hmm. Everything is the same and everything is different all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your faith journey. Oh boy. Uh, oh boy. Here we go. Yeah. Jump in. So I, I was, um, my family that I, you know, my parents, my grandparents, I was born into a very observant Jewish family. Uh, we went to an Orthodox synagogue. We observed all the holidays. We kept kosher. Uh, you know, we weren't kind of symbolic, like once a year Jews, I call them. We were like, you know, observant. Uh, did my, had my bar mitzvah. Led the, yeah, I went to Hebrew high school, the whole thing. But I would say that I was much more of a wandering truth seeker through my late teens and, and into my twenties, mm-hmm. uh, because I had certain pressing questions that were unresolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the basic 
existential ones, you know, how did, why are we here? How did this thing all begin? It, what's wrong with the universe? And is there a trajectory to it? Are we getting better kind of a thing? I might not have worded it exactly that way as a, you know, 17 year old, but those were the questions that were forming in my head that hit me at a gut level. Um, long story short, in my late twenties, I became a Christian. Uh, I, I had really dove into a lot of world philosophies and religions to try to see what coherent and cohesive set of answers I could find. And there was an intense period in what year was this? 2000, the summer of 2000, when my reading habit was up to, uh, gosh, man, it, it, it could have been 10 hour day reading habit. Uh, and it led to, I think it was October, September, October of 2000, when all this time I had never read the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And I finally got to the New Testament because I, I had been reading some, uh, I'd been reading some apologetics. I came across some GK Chesterton and CS Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading some other more blunt contemporary stuff like, uh, um, Oh gosh, Josh McDowell's stuff, evidence of the man's a verdict. Mm-hmm. And it all sort of cleared the brush for me, uh, to finally get to the point where I could crack open the new Testament, which as a Jew, as a, you know, who grew up in the Northeast, you know, one generation removed from various atrocities in Eastern Europe, Holocaust and, and uh, pogroms before that. Uh, it was the cross represented something very different right. to, to us as a Jewish family. So that's why it took a lot for me to even get to the New Testament. But when I got there, the first book I read was Book of James. And it starts out to like something along the lines of to the 12 tribes, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm like 12 tribes. That's me. That's those are the Jews. We're the 12 tribes. Um, and, and it was good because I was wrestling with certain things that he deals with in that letter, uh, faith versus works and that sort of thing. And then I got, I went to the beginning of, of the collection of, of letters and, and gospels, Matthew. And um, in Matthew five, uh, Jesus was giving what I recognized as a Devar Torah, uh, which is uh, the the rab. We uh, in Judaism we read from the Torah three times a week, and the rabbi typically gives a you know a, a lesson on it, um, and it's called Devar Torah. So Jesus was giving what I recognized as a Devar Torah, and I'm like, wow, this is the most brilliant Devar Torah I'd ever heard or read. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I didn't connect it with was the famous Sermon on the Mount. It, I was reading the Sermon on the Mount, and that just pulled me in and. I think it was maybe one or two days after that, that I said this, I got to do this thing. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know like, you know, cause in Judaism, there's all these structured prayers. So, right. uh, but I, I called a friend of mine. I said, Hey man, what, what's the prayer? If I want to do this thing, this Christian thing, like, what do I do? Cause it, this just makes the most sense. And not just like intellectual sense, but like spiritual sense, spiritual cohesiveness and coherence, you know? Um, and even emotionally. Uh, so he said, just talk to God. I'm like, no, what? what? <laughs> He's like, no, just talk to God and tell him what's on your mind. And I said, but there's got to be a prayer, right? Like, Baruch Atah, Hashem, I, you know, like, can't, let's, oh, you know, he's like, no, man, just talk to God and tell him, tell him what you're thinking. So at like three in the morning, one night, I, I was still awake and I just started talking to God. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, and I, you know, it's different for people coming from other faith traditions, but to have that sense of 
there is no veil between us and the priesthood of the believers, you know, we can, we can talk directly to God and, and make our appeals directly to God is different for, um, for Christians and then, then it is for some other faith traditions. So it's like you break that wall and you're able to just, just connect that way. Yeah. So yeah. why Christian instead of a messianic Jew? I had, after I became a Christian, I had learned about a lot of these uh, demarcations, messianic Jew, uh, Jews for Jesus. Yeah. And uh, it, it just didn't resonate with me. Okay. If I describe what my reaction it was at that time when I was introduced to some of these uh, groups or ways to identify, I, it, it would sound rude. <laughs> okay. You know, the Jersey in me would come out like, well, how's this all about? Y'all are frauds, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. It didn't seem authentic to me in a way. Um, and that, that might've just been the congregations or, or the, the gatherings that I had participated in, but I didn't feel a need to... Th- that was not part of how I reconciled that trajectory. Mm-hmm. I, I found, I found what I found in uh, theologians like N.T. Wright, uh, who who writes at great length about. He's a historian who's also, uh, I think it's the Anglican Church that he's a part of. Um, you know, and he's he's a brilliant historian, but he did great history work on first century Israel or what's now known as Israel. Um, and reading through that academic work allowed me to reimagine myself at that time, uh, reimagine, uh, the possibility that I found someone that I believe to be the Messiah, Mashiach, mm-hmm. and going back to my parents who didn't know of this Jesus, who didn't know of this Yeshua ben Yosef, um, and, and, and saying, I, I believe this is Mashiach and I'm following him, mm-hmm. you know? So that connection made more sense to me. Also doing good theology work at the time I was very influenced or early after I became a Christian, I was very influenced by uh, John Howard Yoder's work, which is problematic. Now it's in this last season, some of the most influential work and, and uh, theologians, apologists um, I've come to find out over the last couple of years, they're to say they're imperfect individuals is, is understating it tragically, but, um, I did, but his work, uh, was very, and John Howard Yoder's work is, was very influential on my thinking. Um, and it allowed me to see the continuity between what, what I had studied my whole life growing up Torah, um, and then later the histories and the prophets and the wisdom literature and see the connect the connective tissue of what was what we have in the new Testament. Yeah. So that, that, that just seemed, that just resonated with me a heck of a lot more than some of the prescriptions that I'd come across as briefly as I did with the, the messianic Jewish tradition or, or Jews for Jesus type of thing. So you were raised Orthodox Jew, how did your family take this tra- your transition to Christianity? Oh, it was great. It was, it was awesome. It was yeah, just we just had a so party. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I the first conversation I had was with my dad. It was literally, it was, um, we took a red eye on Thanksgiving morning. 
and got to their house. They were still living in Jersey at the time. My dad and I had this two-hour talk uh, on the front porch about it. Um, and I'll talk about that in a second. But after the talk, my dad said, uh, you got to go in and tell your mother. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and I told Phyllis, um, mom, uh, I don't know how to say this. So I'll just come out and say it. I'm a Christian. And she was like working on her computer and uh, she didn't, she kept on typing. Uh, and, and I'm like, mom, did you, did you hear what I said? Like, I'm a Christian and her, her fingers were still typing, but she kind of floated with her fingers still sort of in a typing motion into the other room. <laughs> and I think she was a little dazed. And, and I said, did, did you hear what I said? And she goes, she goes, I'm sorry. I just never thought I'd have a son. And she didn't know quite what to say or how to say it. And she goes, I didn't know I'd have a son who was walking with Jesus. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then the next thing she says, she calls into the other room. She goes, Ronnie, do hast, which is Yiddish for, uh, did you hear? Do hast, our son is a born again Republican. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> How did you get? Like, I, it wasn't, she's kind of, um, I have the, when our relationship is at its best, it's when I remember that she is the person that a lot of characters and sitcoms are based off of. <laughs> so we're, every time we see everybody loves Raymond, we're convinced that somebody I studied was just going to ask that. Yeah. It was yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's, that's Phyllis. I mean, she, she's an interesting person, but, but my dad going back to my dad, he had initially a much more clinical reaction. He, he um, he, he was a high school guidance counselor most of his career. So he studied, um, you know, clinical therapies, dealing with people in a certain way. So he dealt with me very clinically um, and had a lot of questions, didn't have uh, an ex outwardly emotional reaction to it. But interestingly, about a month later, yeah, it was into December, well into December, but before Christmas. He, I got this 10-page single-spaced letter from my dad outlining all of the reasons why I can't and must not become a Christian. Mm -hmm. And it was every, it was, he, he was, he has a little bit of background in history. So historical reasons, a family, uh, filial obligation, emotional, like all these spiritual, all these different reasons. And it, what I didn't know is in the time be, between when I told him, and um, when I got that letter is he actually considered the possibility of what's called sitting Shiva for me, uh, which is what a, a Jewish family does when somebody in the family dies. You know, uh, if you've ever seen um, Fiddler on the Roof, you know, mm -hmm. at that time, it was even just marrying a Goyish, a, a non-Jewish person that, that you sit Shiva. It's like you're dead to the family. He didn't do that, but, but it was a consideration. Um, but he did. And to his credit, he decided that his relationship with me transcended his convictions as a Jew, that, which says a lot about him. Yeah. Um, and uh, that letter was the beginning of a conversation that in many ways is still going on now. So those first two or three years was very, very tense. I mean, because we were just starting to have kids at that time. And there was a lot wrapped up in that. And I was, we were still kids. We were still babies, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, and, but I did decide to answer him 
paragraph by paragraph, even sentence by sentence. Mm-hmm. And my responses to him spurred responses from him. And, and, you know, it just evolved into this really long conversation. Uh, in some ways, talk politics and religion without killing each other. You know, it's just, right. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like um, that you were able to somehow respectfully have a conversation where you were coming from completely different positions. I mean, completely different parts of the world and, and having that oh. gracious conversation. Sorry. Can you pause or do you want me to adjust that? Okay. So it sounds like you guys were able to have a really respectful conversation, even though you were coming from very two, two very different positions. I think we tried to keep it respectful, although it did get more than heated at times. You know, I remember we, we started um, recommending and, and sending books to each other. Um, one of the books that he sent me was... <laughs> this treatise, this like long report called you take Jesus, I'll take God, (laughs) you know? So it got pretty pointed at times to say the least, but again, I think we always valued the relationship over any particular point that we were trying to make, you know? And I also, I also got away from the, the prevailing mindset that I have to win this debate because if I win this debate, I'll somehow convince this person, in this case, my dad, and they will, you know, come to my point of view and, you know, in, in this case, become a Christian, you know, mm-hmm. and that's just not how most evangelism works or most, you know, my own coming to, to faith, arguably, you could say it was like uh, the better part of a decade mm-hmm. of a transition. So you know, valuing the relationship, I discovered in that process that valuing the relationship with the individual is is the best thing, is one of the best things we can do and let God take care of the rest. If this right. person is meant to become a Christian, great. God's working on that. And he's not, and you're not the main character in that, in that play, if you will. So yeah. we were able to keep by, it's kind of a tangential answer to your question, but by keeping the relationship primary, that, that solved a lot of potential problems. Yeah. So I want to talk about um, something totally different. I want to yeah. talk about mental health a little bit, but before I get there, um, I, I just, I feel like uh, your way of dealing with uh, the, the challenges of your upbringing versus where you had arrived really kind of fed into your current work, your podcast, the uh, talking politics and religion without killing each other. It sounds like that's kind of a foundational conversation that may have opened the door to gracious conversation with others about things that you may totally differ with. Is that, is that true? Totally fair to say that's totally accurate. I think that my, my conversations with my father, we're very much about being able to talk about difficult subjects with, without killing each other, without cutting each other off, you know, with, by still keeping front of mind, the fact that this is my father or my, my dad saying, this is my son, Mm -hmm. you know? And if you draw that circle just a little bit larger, then how do I have this conversation with people that I work with, people that I 
uh, spend a majority of my waking hours with people, my neighbor um, or friends from my kids' schools, pe- people that we're going through life with. Mm-hmm. And what interestingly, when I started going to church, there were a lot of cultural, social, and political characteristics that didn't line up with where my theological beliefs had had arrived at. And a lot of these ancillary conversations started happening. And I realized, man, there's like this stuff outside of the Bible. It's secondary to the Bible. That's secondary to our foundational primary beliefs that are, I felt a lot of them were in contrast with those foundational beliefs. Mm -hmm. So I had to start reckoning with that. And my my training, if you will, those conversations with my father really prepared me well to have conversations with folks in my, uh, from my church. Um, and, uh, and this area too, this area is dominated by, um, John MacArthur is a very prominent pastor and, and he's sort of to say he's categorical, maybe understating it a bit, um, in, in a lot of things, everything is, is put through the lens of (laughs) either, or, you know, with, uh, with Johnny Mac. And so a lot of folks I was going to church with, even a lot of people that, you know, when the kids started going to AYSO on the soccer field, you just come across it everywhere in this Valley. So I didn't want to shy away from those conversations, you know, because, you know, at the end of the day, like I said, we're going through life together. We're going to church together. We're raising our kids together. We're doing all these things. So let's, let's look at these other things too. You know, let's look at, you know, (laughs) I mean, fast forward a little bit, like, is Sarah Palin really the end all be all? Is she the best representative of us? Mm -hmm. You know, um, the way that she talks about the other side. Uh, the way that she engages with quote unquote, the other side, that everything is put through the lens of culture war and and you're either with us or against us, you know? So I, I got into a lot of these conversations, but again, it was because I wasn't ready to give up on the relationships. I knew that there were certain people and certain families that we were going through life together, uh, that I was not ready to give up on those because, you know, in my case, like the funny thing is, is I, I, I probably would be considered a pretty conservative guy, objectively speaking. Like if somebody from a foreign country came and said, How, is this person more conservative or more liberal or progressive or whatever? They probably objectively say I'm more uh, conservative. But, you know, when when the main qualification nowadays is of, of conservative is, are you a Trump supporter or not? Are you a stop the steal guy or not? Right. Then I am not conservative. Um, but again, I, I always wanted to stay in those conversations because I wasn't ready to give up on the relationships. Right. So what do you think is the largest obstacle for respectful, honoring, gracious conversation between two opposing sides, people who are on very different, very different theological, ideological, political lanes. Is it getting over oneself? Is it um, trying to prove a sense of trying to prove your point? Is it what, what is the the biggest obstacle? It can be any number of those things. Uh, but I think the, the, as they say, the first step is admitting it. So what's the it that we have to admit? I think the big it that we have to admit is that above and beyond any particular issue, whether it's tax policy or foreign policy or, or minimum wage or abortion, even above and beyond that, the issue is 
are you on my side or the other side? Right. And how are you defining those sides? Uh, and, and, and what does that mean if you're on the other side? What does that well, mean to us? I think, I think it means, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, if you're just one, if there's one, how, how do they call it? One drop of blood. Remember how right. race at one point was defined? One drop of blood. If there's one drop of impurity, you know, it, it, like if I listened to Hannity's opening monologue on his radio show today, and, and I had something where I said, man, this dude is way off base on this particular thing. Then, then I have that one drop of impurity and I am seen as the adversary. I'm seen not as someone who, you know, small business owner, conservative fiscal policy, social libertarian. Like I'm not seeing that. That doesn't matter. I am now the enemy. I may as well be, you know, the worst, whatever, whatever, whoever the demon is in that, in that mindset. So we got to get over that. You know, we got to, so everything is filtered through that, right. you know, and, and, and how we engage with people is based on those terms. It's based on warlike terms. Mm -hmm. And my job when I'm engaging with someone in that mindset is to own them or to shoot them down or to mock them or to, you know, all these things They're like, if you look at the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, our job, if we see it through that person is the enemy, that person is the adversary. Our job is to embody the exact opposite of the fruit of the spirit. Right. So everything else becomes subservient to that mindset. So if we can just admit it uh, and, and diagnose it and then have some prescriptions to get over it, then we can start to talk. Right. So that, that's what I always try to do. I try to find folks and I have good friends that just, you know, the conversations are hard, but, mm -hmm. um, but we've, we've somehow found, we've cut through all of that, that chafe, right. We've cut through right. all of that brush and we get back to basic principles, you know? Well, and I think discovering in life that we can be different and we can think different doesn't have to define, like you're saying, doesn't have to define the status of our relationship. Yeah. As long as you agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm relatively young in comparison to the universe. And I, I just think we've never been in a, in a era like this, where everything is so polarized and everything is so you have to have one position or the other. There's no in between, there's no gray, there's no, there's no margin there. There's just a hard line between one side and the other. It just feels like this era right now is terrible. Yeah. Well, there have been other eras. And I, I think being of Jewish descent and growing up in, in that her, with that heritage, you know, my ancestors lived through the Inquisition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? uh, so we found a way to that's what called Nidre is like the whole if, if there are Jews that only go to uh, shul or synagogue once a year, they go for Kol Nidre. The um, it's a prayer that that was developed after the Inquisition of saying, God, I know that outwardly I'm, I'm acting like a Christian, like a, a part of the, a good Catholic in that, in that time. Uh, but you know, you know that I'm still Jewish. So forgive me for all of these things that I've done mm. in order to look like I'm Christian. It's for our survival. Now, there are certain things that a Jew could never do that, you know, um, 
but but as a, as a people, we've had to figure out ways to survive. Yeah, you know, so we've had to we've had to reconcile impossible things. You know, yeah, definitely. Well, talk to me a little bit about um, you know, in two thousand and six, you became aware that you had been struggling with some mental health challenges, and then uh, post uh, the financial instability of two thousand eight and two thousand nine, you know, again there was um, dramatic changes in your life. Tell me a little bit about your journey with understanding your own mental health and and mental illness as it relates to the, the impact of things that were happening in your life? It's a big question. (laughs) That was a big question. That was like five questions in one. (laughs) Um, So I think when the kids were coming of age, I realized that I was interacting with them and and with Lisa in, in a way that wasn't as healthy as it should be. So Mm -hmm. I I didn't have all the answers, but I recognized that what up to that point, the label of, well, Corey is moody, you know, like, um, (laughs) so that just wasn't sufficient, you know, and I I wanted to be a better dad, a better husband, a better brother, a better friend. And the long, it was kind of a long road to, to realizing, oh man, I might have this depression thing or this uh, manic Mm -hmm. depression thing. Um, and then when I started, I went to a therapist for a stretch and it was hard for me because I, I found one of the other um, indictments was that I was self-centered uh, by my nuclear family. And um, so I, I resisted, uh, I eschewed doing something that felt too self-indulgent for me. And that's what therapy felt like, but it was still, in a, I, I felt like there were certain important things I needed to discover in order to be better for the people that I loved. Um, and through that process, I discovered my, my therapist, I don't know if I told you the story when we were talking earlier, but, um, uh, my therapist had a sense of humor. He had me take some tests and he, he came back with uh, an assessment. He said, so, you know, some people go through, um, a temporary mild depression. Some people, it lasts a little bit longer. It's more severe. And then there are other people who the results come back and um, we realize this person should not stand near any windows in tall buildings. <laughs> because Corey, you know, put the sharp objects away and uh, that's you. So I, I had, um, I realized, and then looking back at my life, I realized that I had always gone through seasons uh, and they usually lasted month, two months at a time where it was just hard to get out of bed and, and walking through life, you know, it wasn't like you're just walking through the air. It was almost like you were walking through a morass of sorts, you know, um, when you're in that season. And then there were other seasons that lasted about as long where it was like, I can conquer the world, you know, like, um, so that's kind of what that, that whole thing is. So, uh, I did try like medication and stuff like that. I I didn't see the results or the effect. I didn't, feel the effects of it, but I did, um, pick up some habits to, uh, figure out how to work through those seasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, some of which I still do to this day. Like I I still write every day. Um, I, uh, but at that time I thought of it as kind of like when you're sick, you go to the doctor, you get a prescription, you you feel better, right? You get better. But, uh, and, and I also didn't see it as something 
like an element of who we are as human beings that we all have to tend to, you know, whereas this last couple of years, I realized, man, we got to pay attention to our mental health the way we pay attention to our physical health. Mm -hmm. And I have to encourage my kids and and everybody around me, if I have any influence over them to do the same. Right. So yeah, it's been, it's been quite a journey. I didn't answer the part about the um, financial the yeah, great recession. So 2008 and 2009, um, you had some major instability happen yeah. in your life. Can you um, kind of summarize that briefly and, and talk about <laughs> Briefly that? is the key. Briefly. You see, I'm very long-winded. I'm sorry. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So the great recession, being a small business owner, that hit us really, really hard. Uh, and, you know, the, the nexus of that chapter in our lives was the day that it was actually almost exactly this time of year uh, in 2012. So we started getting hit really hard as early as late 2007, really. Uh, But then 2012, it came to a head and I had this excruciating decision. Do I pay our mortgage or do I meet payroll? And um, the good half of that story is that I've never missed a payroll, thank God. Mm -hmm. But we did have to start a process that ultimately resulted in us losing our house. Mm-hmm. You know, the house where my kids grew up, the house that our our home, our family home. Um, because we just, man, and listen, I made some mistakes that led to that, but a lot of it is like the Great Recession. <laughs> you know, it's like blaming somebody for the stock market, one individual for the stock market crash in 1929 is like, you know, it's right high tides kind of a thing. Uh, and low tides for that matter. So that, but that had very real concrete effects on us. And uh, I mean, so dealing with that and questioning oneself, you know, what was my culpability um, and and how am I failing my, how am I fit failing my family? You know, that it was all during that chapter of life where I was dealing with my own mental uh struggles, mental illness, if you want to call it that, um, they were, they were all sort of intertwined, um, but healing also comes in the midst of that, you know, right. uh, no temptation has take, has overtaken you, but such as a common to man, but God is faithful. He gives you the way out of it. Right. I'm not quoting exactly, but, right. uh, no testing is, is another translation of that verse. And, uh, one of the happiest moments of my life was fast forward a few years. Uh, I think what was this 2015 or so. I paid it turned after everything was said and done, I had to pay. Um, I had to dig out of a seven figure hole. Mm. And one of the lines of credit, I had taken out a couple of lines of credit to meet payroll. Uh, and one of them was with a local bank. So again, a guy that I saw on the soccer fields where our kids were, you know, in AYSO, he's not just some, you know, nameless, faceless banker. He was a neighbor. Uh, I got to go to the, the local bank, Bank of Santa Clarita. And the last piece of debt that I paid off was the credit line that they got, a small business uh, credit line that they got for us. And uh, I just, I didn't know that it was going to be a big deal. I knew it was going to be a big deal for me, but for the bank. So I just went to the teller. I gave him this big old check. I, you know, made a lot of sacrifices, sold everything and whatever. I gave him this big old check. It was our last piece of debt. I was just planning on going out and uh, celebrating, you know, uh, on my own. But the teller said, give me a second. And she goes back um, and she gets this fellow named, his name's Craig Connor. He was the small business specialist at the bank. And Craig came out and he said, Corey, 
I, this is awesome, man. Thank you. Like, this really means a lot to me. And I'm like, whoa, I, what? <laughs> like, it means a lot to me. I didn't know it means a lot. Like, you're a bank. Like, what does it matter to you? Right. He goes, give me a second. He goes back. He literally gets the president of the bank. And uh, I could get teary eyed remembering this, but the president of the bank, I forgot his name, but Craig and the president shook my hand and said, you're, you're a man of honor. You're a man of principle mm. because it wasn't just something that they could write off. It meant something to them. It meant something tangible to them. Right. The fact that I honored my, my commitment. And that's what that all represented to me that, yeah, we're going to get hit hard. And yeah, some of it might even be some of the mistakes that we make along the way, but some of it is just circumstantial. It's just life and history and the world going on. Uh, and you're a part of it. Um, and in the thick of it, uh, but you know, fighting through it, you know, it, it sounds cliche, but like when you're, when you're, uh, how did, how do you put it? When you're going through trouble, go through it, <laughs> you know, don't stop, go through Absolutely. it kind of a thing. Absolutely. So we dug our way out. Now it's such a cool day and represent symbolic of, of, uh, kind of digging out of it. And then just a couple of years after that, we were finally able to get back into a home ownership situation. Uh, that's really, amazing. yeah, really that's cool. Amazing. So that's a story in and of itself. Yeah. If we had another, if we had another hour, we'd go into that one too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. was there any kind of a um, spiritual indictment or spiritual messaging that happened in your life in regards to mental health, um, mental struggles? Did oh, yeah. You, yeah. I'm wondering what that messaging was. Well, some of it was internal for me. Like I said, I had this self, I... <laughs> an image of myself as I have to fight through my own selfishness. I have to fight through my own moodiness. So I had to fight through that mentality, that self image. Um, but another part of it was, so when I first shared with my dad, his first response was, what do you have to be depressed over? You had a great childhood and, you know, a great, everybody, you know, whatever. So it, yeah, that's a whole other uh, conversation. But the other part of it, uh, spiritually, theologically, again, I, I was going, I, we weren't still at that church because I had some other issues, but, you know, the Johnny <laughs> Mac influenced church, um, their, you know, master's university is, is the college that he leads. And um, they, I'm oversimplifying it, but they basically see modern psychology, the study of psychology as bunk, as, you know, th this is all it's all a sin issue. Basically it comes down to a sin issue. So the responses that I was getting when I was first exploring this, you know, back in 2000, 2006, 2007, we were still at that big church and it was, man, you got to deal with your sin. It's a sin issue. And it just, that's like, if you could dream up the worst way to interact with someone who's first grappling with these issues that it couldn't, it couldn't be worse, man. Right. So, Yeah. So I had to fight through that and kind of over, over, overcome what, because I, I, I'm a pretty teachable guy. Like when I, there's folks that I respect uh, and love and admire, and they have, you know, the outward fruits of the kind of life that I want to uh, be a part of and, and, and embody myself. It's hard when, when they're saying something like, you know, you're, your manic depression isn't really that that's just an illusion. It's really sin. It just, yeah. So you had to kind of fight through a lot of that. And, you know, ultimately I think another part of my nature is to be a truth seeker. Uh, so, you know, if, if you get, 
It's not to say that if you get answers you don't like, find other ones because that doesn't always work. But again, if your if your compass is set to truth, whether you like that truth or not, I think, and I trust in a good God. I think God will ultimately kind of, kind of guide you toward that truth, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, along the way, I've just discovered it's not something that I can fix like that. I can't just pray it away. Uh, but it is something that we can tend to. We are human. We're not God. We are human, and therefore we're fallen. We have all these frailties. So you know, I've just developed good habits, uh, healthy habits. You know, I take a walk almost every morning. Um, I, I still write. I, my writing is more like a, the way a lot of people would pray. Uh, that's kind of my writing time or other, may, other folks might uh, meditate. Um, so that's my writing. I read a lot. You can see my, uh, yeah, I can see all your books. Yeah. But really healthy material, you know, whether it's great literature on the fiction side or um, edifying material on the nonfiction side. So reading, writing, but even certain mundane acts like making the bed in the morning, yeah. you know, or cleaning the poop, yep. <laughs> you know, we got the dogs. So I clean, but that stuff, you can sanctify the mundane mm-hmm. and that's good for your mental health. You know, it says, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we need to sort of nurture our heart, soul, mind, and strength in order to uh, better love the Lord, you know? Mm-hmm. That is, that's a great title for a book, Sanctify the Mundane. I stole it. I stole Did it. you? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it, it was Heschel, uh, the, the rabbi Heschel, a great theologian, non-Christian, a Jewish philosopher, theologian. He wrote in the mid 20th century and his book on the Sabbath talks about that a lot. Yeah. So. Well, hey, it has been my pleasure talking with you, and um, I feel like we could continue this conversation, but alas, we have to put an end to it some sometime. <laughs> yeah. So the podcast is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. How can we find you? Yeah, so you can go to politicsandreligion.podbean.com. Okay. That's the main page, politics and religion spelled out. Or on social media, we're TP and R pod. So TP for talking politics, A N D spelled out R for religion, pod, TP and R pod on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and all that stuff. All right. Well, Corey, it has been a good morning talking to you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it, Jill. Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You have a great day. You too. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.